There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Salem fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paisley. Morning, church. Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers among us this morning. And if you have the opportunity to honor a mother that the Lord has providentially put in your life today, I hope you'll make use of it. Um, It's a fitting day for Christians to realize what a blessing it is uh, that God has given the particular women in our lives that role. Um, As a church, we have something really important coming up, part of our fellowship, a congregational meeting next Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. We also have a pitch-in dinner afterward, as is our usual pattern, at 6.15. If you're newer to the church, these are awesome opportunities to come and get to know more people and hear a lot about what the Lord is doing in our church family. Um, I guarantee you, you'll bump into people you won't see on a given Sunday, and you'll have lots of opportunity to talk and sit and enjoy a meal together. For our members, we would love for you to be informed ahead of that meeting portion, especially for the things we're voting on. So if you were not able to make the town hall meeting, there are, uh, there's a recording available. And if you just send an email to Eric or I, we'd be glad to get you the link for it. Um, I think it'll really help you to be prepared and know what we're talking about. And make, we'll use that time as effectively as possible. There's also a vision trip uh, info meeting right before the congregational meeting. It's at 4.15 for that filter of hope trip coming up with Jeff Johnson announced it a few weeks back. Uh, If you're interested, that's in the adult ed room. That's just downstairs, um, 4.15 right before the congregational meeting. All right, last announcement is... If you're newer here, uh, just so you know, our normal pattern is we're just working our way through books of the Bible, letting the verses in front of us be determine what the sermons are going to be for the weeks ahead. And sometimes that lands a little bit oddly when it comes to particular days. So um, please do not read into the sermon text for Mother's Day. That is not an intentional connection or anything like that. We just trust that all of Scripture is profitable And so this is what the Lord has for us this morning. With that said, let's prepare our hearts to receive the food of God's word. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us in and out of season. We acknowledge before you, Father, that we need your help so that our natural reflex would not be to assume assume or presume, but to repent, to look inwardly on our own sins and the need to settle accounts with you before judgment arrives. 
So Father, would you help us to learn that lesson this morning? Would you keep us from the resistance that the enemy and our own flesh would love to put up to your word having its way within us? Make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. In the plentitude of his power and arrogance, he was struck down and is so ushered into eternity with innumerable crimes and sins to answer for. That quote was not about a well-known tyrant or despot with millions of bodies accounted to his wake. It was written about Abraham Lincoln. If you're like me, you've heard of the death of Abraham Lincoln as he was shot on that Friday evening in the theater as a tragedy, one that led the nation into mourning. After all, the nation had endured so much, having to fight the Civil War, all the tensions that were there. People thought that maybe Abraham Lincoln would be able to unite the country afterward, and yet his life was snatched away. As I thought, that was pretty much the universal way people responded. It turned out not so. He had a number of enemies, uh, most of them in the South, didn't like the way the war had turned out. But some who went so far as to assume the reason why he was murdered, some even tied it to him attending a theater on Good Friday, breaking the Sabbath in some way. Now, to us, that sounds awfully cruel to try and attach some sort of reason that you really can't know to someone's untimely death. And yet, that quote appeared in the Charleston Gazette, out in public for everyone to consider. I think with a little bit of reflection, we realize that same tendency is alive in our day. That Christians and non-Christians alike make lots of assumptions and presumptions about judgment, whether they have the words to articulate it, using the words of the Bible or not, which is why we need to learn from Jesus from Luke 13 this morning. Jesus and his disciples are on that road of discipleship, leading them ever closer to Jerusalem. And along the way, Jesus is teaching them all important lessons they'll need once he has left this world and his death, burial, and ascension. This morning, we'll come to the important lesson of what to do when you see suffering. And Jesus will have this main point. We must not assume the reasons or presume the timing, but repent before judgment arrives. We must not assume the reasons or presume the timing, but repent before judgment arrives. We'll see that in two sections, which I'll give you on the front end for those of you who like to take down meticulous notes. First, in verses one through five, repent. Do not assume the source of suffering. Repent. Do not assume the source of suffering. Second, in verses six through nine, repent. Do not presume the speed of judgment. Repent, do not presume the speed of judgment. Let's begin in that first section, verses 1 through 5. The last few sections we've studied over these last few Sundays has had a running theme of stewardship 
and the final judgment to come. The logic has gone something like this. Everything in your life is given to you by God. God is the rightful owner of it. And therefore, it needs to be used under stewardship for his purpose. All of your time, all of your talent, all of your treasure, every single bit of it will one day be accounted for on a coming day of judgment. Jesus has talked a lot about that coming day of judgment. It's like a, a day of accounts being settled, where you have to make sure that the score is settled with God before it's too late, and you get tossed into the prison of forever judgment under his wrath. Well, those themes continue on into chapter 13 with that judgment idea now coming into focus with another topic in there, that of suffering. How do the suffering and God's judgment relate to each other? Jesus gives two answers in these first five verses. The first is an answer to an atrocity. That's what we see in verses one through three. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road with this crowd along with them. And someone comes to Jesus and tells him about this unfortunate, terrible, tragic, atrocious headline. There's a group of pious pilgrims on their way to give their sacrifices when they were murdered in cold blood by a hit team from Pontius Pilate. Now, we can tell a number of things from that. Um, first off, that's not a, out of character for the guy we know as Pontius Pilate. He was a pretty gnarly dude. Uh, but second, we could know that these were almost assuredly laymen, so everyday Israelites, during the Passover. That was the only time of the year where a layperson would themselves offer up these blood sacrifices. So for them to be in the process of offering up these bloody sacrifices to God meant that this was one of the most high holy moments in the Israelite calendar. And yet that was also the moment of their bloody end. Uh, instead of offering the blood of the animal sacrifices, their own blood ended up intermingled in a noxious soup. All of this because of some sort of political motive from this man, Pontius Pilate, where we're not told exactly what that is. Now, that's a horrible thing to have happen. And I'm sure the people were outraged and grieving. How could the, God let the Romans get away with this? But Jesus' response is utterly shocking. Look what it is in verse 2. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Uh, Jesus brings to the surface some assumptions that were alive in his day that I think are still very much alive today. That when we see someone suffer, it's in some sense because they're getting what they deserve for some particular set of sins. People back then assumed if you were righteous, you prospered. If you were wicked, you would be punished. Therefore, if someone is murdered or has some other atrocity committed against them, that must mean that they were on the wrong side of God. I wonder what sort of hidden, horrible sins 
they had on their soul for God to punish them in such a way. That was the assumption. Jesus brings it to the surface. And then shockingly, Jesus wipes that assumption away with one word. No. No. No, that's not what's going on. No, that is the wrong conclusion. No, you should not make that assumption. Now, why would Jesus say that? Assuredly, uh, there are examples in your Bible where specific sins are punished by specific judgments from God, right? Even the same author, Luke, will do just as much in the, another book that we attribute to him, the book of Acts. A guy named Herod, he receives worship from a crowd, and he is struck dead by an angel for it. Divine judgment. He's eaten by worms on the spot. Surely at some times, in fact, the Bible records lots of times, where there is a specific sin that leads to a specific earthly judgment. And yet there are also times where if you are paying close attention to your Bible, you'll know that there is no discernible reason why someone undergoes suffering. Uh, the book of Job basically has that entire book, uh, that has that, entire, that premise for the entire book. Um, Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, heals a man that was born blind and has this very question come up and explicitly denies that's what's going on. It's not because he did anything wrong. It's not because his parents did anything wrong. It's for the mysterious plan of God to reveal his glory. According to the Bible and according to Jesus, there are times where, yes, God does act in this world with judgment. It's not wrong to believe that. But it is wrong to assume we can always know when that occurs. To borrow a phrase from Pastor John Piper, God is doing three million things at once in this world. And we're lucky if we notice one or two of them at any given time. The problem is not believing that God judges people in the here and now. The problem is our assumption that we can know his reasons for doing that. Instead, Jesus says, there's something else we should do. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh, Jesus says that what we should do is not make assumptions about ourselves or others when we see suffering, but instead our reflex should be to repent, to take tack, uh, account of our own soul, to ask ourselves, are we ready for that moment where we will face God? or Has the score been settled or not? Uh, Jesus says this because each and every atrocity that's committed has the potential to be of spiritual benefit to you if you'll see it as a preview of the wrath of God to come. Uh, we may not know the reasons for what God does in this world, but we do know this. Uh, one day, the world and everyone in it will be judged. Those in Christ will be spared, but those who stand on their own merit will come under the terror, the worst of all outcomes, the eternal wrath of God in hell. The worst atrocities that we see in this world are like little pictures of the horror of that day coming. And if they lead us to repent, then they can do spiritual good for us. 
Uh, Jesus says the same thing from a slightly different angle, this time not with atrocities, but instead with an accident. Uh, second example, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam felled and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This time, it's what an insurance person would call an act of God. It's not something that any one person can be blamed for. It's just a random, seemingly random occurrence or accident. Uh, it's in a place called Siloam that's inside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, there's a famous pool there that shows up in another spot in the Bible. There was some sort of tower there. Maybe it was under construction. Maybe it had been there for a while. We don't know. All we do know is that that tower came tumbling down and it squished 18 people flat in a moment. It's a horrible tragedy. People undoubtedly were shaken by the whole thing. But does that mean that those people were worse sinners than the people who didn't get killed by that tower? Uh, Jesus uses the financial term, uh, much like the passage last week. Does that mean that their debt before God was greater? Once again, he responds with no. Now, that's not the right way to think about this. That's not the right assumption to make. Instead, you are to repent before something worse happens to you. Uh, Jesus is teaching here that it doesn't matter whether it's an atrocity or an accident, any sort of suffering that we see, we are to not make assumptions about the reasons for that suffering, but instead to have the reflex to repent. I think if we just use a little bit of uh, awareness, we could see why this would be a bad thing to do in many scenarios where we live. Um, a few years back in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, there was, a, um, there was a church that was having a midweek Bible study. It was a historic African-American church the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, they welcomed in a visitor that evening, a, a white man to a historically black church, but they were very welcoming, showed hospitality. He joined in the Bible study. They prayed. He was, spoke with multiple people. What they didn't know is that he was there for an explicitly evil motive, a, a racist desire to murder and that after the Bible study, he pulled out a gun and shot and killed nine of the people that were a part of that study that night. Now, should we assume that there were some hidden sins that those nine people had, and that's the reason they were shot and killed? See the problem with that? We can't know that, and it only makes the suffering worse when we make those sorts of assumptions. Now, Jesus says we are not to do it. Instead, we are to repent. Now, that call to repent doesn't mean we don't do good, certainly in terms of providing relief and showing compassion and praying for others. But it does show that there's a spiritual priority, maybe when the quiet of our heart moment comes, that whatever suffering we see, ourselves or others, it's supposed to make sure that we are ready for meeting God one day. So I'm going to give you three takeaways from this. 
that I think should be reasons why you should not assume, but instead repent when you see suffering. The first is do it for the sake of your own soul. Uh, Jesus has made plain the reason why he wants this to happen. He, he wants you not to assume so that you will repent. Seen from that light, when we engage in this sort of assuming about the reasons God has for suffering, we distract ourselves from the main thing Jesus wants for us to have happen. He wants for us to soberly assess whether there are unconfessed sins on our hearts, whether there's some gap between us and God, and to make sure that we settle accounts while the moment is fresh. When we engage in assumptions and speculation, we give an occasion for the enemy in our own flesh to lose that moment and distract us from what Jesus says we should do. Second, I would say, for, do it for the sake of your witness. When you're talking with an unbeliever, uh, when you make assumptions about suffering, you actually unintentionally give them an out to the gospel message you're trying to persuade them about. I've seen this happen. People think, you say, okay, God is punishing that wicked sinner of some sort. And immediately they think to themselves, well, God hasn't done that to me. That must mean I'm okay with him because apparently he punishes people when they're on his bad side. Now, of course, you would never want them to think about that. But knowing that is what they do naturally, the defenses of the heart, instead, wouldn't it be a better strategy to do what Jesus says here and point them to the final judgment to come, which all of us universally must fear? I found this to be very powerful in my evangelistic conversations. Uh, to tell people, yes, that's a horrible thing that happened. And it's a picture, a preview. It should warn us about the horror of the wrath of God for all those who refuse to repent. Third, don't make assumptions for the sake of your own heart. I say this because if you're a Christian, you are not exempt from suffering in this world. Sooner or later, you will see suffering that's very close to home, either people you know personally or in your own life. And if you make assumptions about the reasons why that suffering is there, you can pile on extra guilt to make the whole thing much, much worse. Imagine someone close to you, you see a neighbor whose house burns down at the end of your block. After helping them pick through the pieces, this thought pops into your head. Well, I wonder what they were doing in there for God to have burned down their house in that way. Now, that is not going to help you to be a compassionate and winsome neighbor in that moment. If you say that, God help us. Now, on the other hand, when it comes to our own suffering... We can do the same things. Uh, God has reasons for all the suffering that comes into our lives as Christians. For all the lost jobs. For all the spouses that aren't faithful. Uh, for all the physical infirmities we deal with. On Mother's Day, it's right to mention that there are a unique set of sufferings connected to motherhood. Either desire to be a mother or the heartache that comes as a result of life as a mother in a fallen world. Eric 
prayed very capably about those very things earlier in the service. What can make your moment of suffering even worse, though, is to assume it's happening because of some sin, maybe one that you're just not able to pinpoint. You feel like God's punishing you, like He hates you because this is happening. But that's not the way we relate to God. Uh, We know Him as a loving Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. Uh, We know that, yes, He allows suffering to be a part of our lives in this world, but as part of good discipline, out of love, that it's meant to lead us closer to Him and through repentance to make us more like Jesus Christ. So don't let your heart be weighed down with extra guilt trips, trying to assume what God is doing and His reasons. Instead, take Jesus' blanket admonition, when you see suffering, repent. Take inventory of your soul, and wherever you see anything that's not in line with the God that you love, come to Him in repentance. And know that He will provide all the grace you need to endure your suffering. Uh, Jesus says a pretty hard word in verses 1 through 5, that we should not assume the source of our suffering. I'd say the intensity only increases in the next section, and that's in verses 6 through 9. Repent, do not presume the speed of judgment. In this case, Jesus gives a very strong warning to another hidden assumption of our souls. You see, each of us has the temptation to think, because I have had all the days of my life up until now, God has not yet brought final judgment upon me, then surely I'm going to continue to have more days in the future, right? I've got more time to live the way I want, to pursue my own desires, or even to get around to repenting one day, because surely judgment won't come upon me. It's to that presumption that Jesus tells this parable. Listen to it. They told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Well, with every parable that Jesus tells, he has a main point to it. This particular parable, it's the story of a guy with a a plot of land who wants fruit-bearing plants in it. Much to his consternation, there's this fig tree that is utterly fruitless. And he's done with it. It's had three years. Time to rip that thing out and plant something else that actually will produce fruit. But he also has a gardener. And that gardener pleads for some more time. Just give me one more chance. One year, a little fertilizer and some TLC. Maybe this thing can bear some figs for you. Now, I think we're supposed to understand that both the landowner and the gardener are both representing God. 
different attributes of God that in this moment are in a moment of tension. Uh, The landowner represents God's holiness, uh, the God that expects and even insists that his people must bear fruit. The God that, when he doesn't see such fruit, will eventually bring judgment. On the other hand, there is the gardener, which represents the patience, forbearance, and mercy of God. God's never slow in his judgments, and yet he often gives even extended periods of time so that people will use that time to repent. That just leaves the question of, who are the, who's the fig tree? I think the obvious answer is supposed to be the nation of Israel. For, that's for one main reason. And in your Old Testament, this landowner, vineyard um, dynamic between God and his people is used repeatedly. Just a few examples, Micah 7, uh, Isaiah 5. Um, God's people are described as a fig tree or as a vine. And when God doesn't see the fruit he desires, well, then they can expect him to come and chop them down to size sooner or later. That is, unless they will repent. Unfortunately, we know from the rest of the Bible and from history that the nation of Israel did not repent in that day. Uh, They were given an extra moment of repentance opportunity to repent. They'd already received so much grace, received the scriptures and the prophets and the temple to worship in. And the last allotment was Jesus himself, the Messiah and all of his preaching and miracles. And yet they would refuse to repent even to the end. And as a result, there was a here and now earthly judgment. In AD 70, the Romans came and knocked down the walls of Jerusalem and burned the temple and everything in it and butchered thousands of Jews. All of that because they would not repent under the presumption that surely they had more time. Now, we live in a very different moment than when Jesus told this parable. We do not live in a nation that is God's chosen people by covenant the way that the Israelite nation was. And yet there is a spiritually fruitful parallel for us Because whether we're a Christian or not a Christian, none of us can presume how long until judgment comes for us, which means we need to hear Jesus' warning to repent. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, when you hear that word repent, I wonder if you understand what it means. Uh, This week I found a, a very I think helpful, tight definition, three words to it. To repent means first confession. That is to acknowledge in your mind, in your heart, that yes, I have committed a sin. Uh, To be open about that, if you've committed that sin against others, but certainly before God, to own the fact that you committed the sin, that's confession. Second is contrition. Contrition is that feeling that we experience when we realize we have offended the holy God of heaven. That sense of wrongness, even dread, contrition is a mark of true repentance. And third, and most crucially, is change. It's not enough just to acknowledge and to feel. It's concrete actions that 
change the way we actually live. In the Bible, the word for repentance literally means to turn around. Uh, you can think of someone walking down a road one particular way. To repent is to turn around and go the opposite direction. To, instead of pursuing sin, to turn away from it and pursue the God that made us. Now, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, according to the Bible, that means you have not yet, for the first time, truly repented of your sin. And the Bible tells us that's a very dangerous place to be. The, the warning Jesus gives in this, this passage is that the day of judgment might be much sooner than you might imagine. Just because you had yesterday doesn't mean you'll have tomorrow. Even worse, we already know the results of what judgment day will mean for everyone who does not repent. It will be forever punishment under the just wrath of God for sinners. All the atrocities and accidents in the world you've seen will just be a tiny drop in the bucket compared to that horror going on forever. And yet this God of justice and holiness, thankfully, is also a God of love and mercy. And He's made a way for sinners to be able to repent and to be forgiven. He did that through that man, Jesus Christ, who told this parable and gave that warning. Uh, Jesus experienced the wrath of God when He hung on the cross. In so doing, He absorbed the punishment the sinners of all types deserved. And when Jesus died after being crucified, he fully paid the penalty that your sins deserve and made it possible that you could repent of those sins and draw close to God as someone who is forgiven. And Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days after he died, he came back to life so that once we repent, we could experience a forever life with God, a life of joy and love a life closer to God than we imagined, a life more secure than anything we'll find in this world. All of that can be yours, but friend, you must begin with this first warning of Jesus to repent. Now, if you've not done that yet, I hope that today will be the day that you will repent for the first time. Uh, you're in a room full of people that largely have done that and would love to help you to take a step of repentance. If you don't know what that means, let me just encourage you. Ask the person sitting closest to you. Chances are they're a Christian and would love to explain how you can be saved by repenting of your sins. Now, to those of us who are Christians this morning, you might be under the impression, well, I have already repented of my sins like what he just talked about. So I guess, preacher man, there's not really any application for me from this passage. But in fact, as a Christian, the call to repent is actually more applicable than it was before you came to Christ. Martin Luther famously said that the whole of the Christian life is summed up in that word of Jesus to repent. In other words, it's not just something you do once at the beginning of your Christian journey. No, you repent again and again as God reveals new and more hidden sins to you. You become more sensitive to the things that you must confess. You feel more deeply the things that you are contrite for, and you work all the more decisively to change with the grace of God. So my dear brothers and sisters, when 
you have that thought of, oh, there's that sin, but you know what? I'll deal with it next week. Hear Jesus' words. No, repent of that sin today. Don't presume how long the grace of God gives us in this earthly life. Use the opportunity while it's here. And remember, when you do repent, that Jesus is not angry with you. He's not looking for a reason to cut off his relationship with you. He's not going to ghost you. Now, Jesus is ready to provide you with the grace you need to restore you and even fill you with more joy than you had before you sinned and repented this time. We can, uh, this is something that we can help each other with as a church, too. Each and every time we get together, we're reminded of the good news of the gospel. We're reminded of the need to live a holy night life. And that means we're reminded of the need to repent. If we make it our reflex to repent, anytime we see suffering or anytime we feel that tendency to push off our sin and think we have more time, we can be super helpful for each other in conversations before or after church or in small group. If you are open with someone and tell them, you know, I've been dealing with this particular sin and I don't feel the motivation to repent of it the way I should, then that person has the opportunity to encourage you with scriptures and even these words from Jesus to help you take the steps of repentance necessary. Let's do this well with each other, not expecting that Christians are somehow free from sin. We'll never need to repent. But instead, having the right expectation that those of us who have come to God through Jesus Christ will be those who repent most frequently and even most freely. And when we do, we'll see that the, what the Lord says here is true. We make the good use of the time we have in this world. We'll walk closely with God. And we'll even have confidence for the day that approaches, that day of judgment, when all of our deeds will be laid bare. On that day, if we have borne the fruit of repentance, as Jesus has instructed us to, we'll know with confidence that that will be a day of welcome and celebration and not one of terror and sorrow. What are we supposed to do when we see suffering? What are we supposed to do with the days we have in relation to God's judgment? Not to assume about the reasons, not to presume about the timing, but to repent before judgment arrives. And when that's done, one that's done well, the results of the fruit that are born are spectacular. On September 11th, a true atrocity occurred. Uh, airliners f flown into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, thousands lost their lives. Uh, in the horror of that day, their Pastor Tim Keller, Redeemer Presbyterian, was right in the heart of downtown New York. He, he remembers being able to smell the jet fuel burning and the buildings on fire for months afterward. They were that close to it all. You know what happened the Sunday after 9-11 at Redeemer Presbyterian? 5,000 people showed up out of the blue. It was so many people that on the spot they decided, we, we need to do something. So they added another service, made the decision in right at the moment. Now it's going to be another service. This time, 
let people know, 700 people showed up to that spontaneous service. And what happened over the weeks and months that followed? Well, hundreds of people repenting of their sins and coming to saving faith in Jesus. Why? Because when we see suffering, we should not assume the reason or presume upon the timing, but we assuredly should repent before judgment comes. When we do that, the fruit is obvious. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would make us into a people that would have that reflex to repent. Each time we see suffering in our own lives or each time we see suffering in the world around us, would we be quick to take account of our own souls, to lay them bare before you in confession and contrition and in true change, bearing fruit of repentance as you call us to. Uh, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who is resisting your call to repentance, that you would provide them with the grace to take those costly steps, knowing that they will be blessed in doing so. Uh, Father, we also know that we as your church are called to reach those around us in this fallen, suffering world. We pray you would help us to use this warning from our Lord Jesus to point them to the reality of coming judgment. Not to assume we know the reasons for the specific thing that happened, but to with confidence tell them the truth that one day something much worse will happen to every sinner that refuses to repent. Would you help us to appeal to them from the heart? Would you use us as your church so that others might be saved? Oh, Jesus, help us now as we sing this song to do so with the confidence that you do work amongst us and that you would use us for this purpose. We pray in your mighty name. Amen.